Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. In the absence of a directional change uh, at the federal level, what you're going to see is at least our province, and I suspect some others, uh, that that will challenge each and every one of these regulations as they come out because, uh, the, the, the federal government doesn't have the the constitutional authority uh, to uh, change how or if we are developing our natural resources. It's entirely under the provincial authority as per the Constitution. So, so I know for the last 21 hours you've been thinking about nothing else other than what's it going to sound like tomorrow. Right? It's been on your mind all night, all morning. What's green going to sound like tomorrow? Well, this is it. The laryngitis is going, but it's not entirely gone yet. That, of course, was Premier Mo on the program with us not so long ago. He had a cold, too, that, during that interview. And uh, the Premier, speaking very clearly what the government of Saskatchewan's view is, of the federal government's actions and determination and initiatives are, as far as interfering with provincial jurisdiction, on energy rights. Well, it was a week ago that the province of Alberta experienced a really serious issue with the electrical grid. It was in danger of being so overloaded, the blackouts across the province were very near. And Premier Daniel Smith uh, pointed, uh, posted rather to X, that uh, Federal Environment Minister Gilbo's various net zero plans for 2035 are going to cost trillions of dollars and lead to energy and food insecurity. So a week ago, in the province of Alberta, it was very, very close and very, very alarming. And the Premier joins us on the Roy Green Show. Premier, good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, Roy. Just how close were you? Very close. Um, it's sort of tough to for people to get their head around what it means to, to be within 40 megawatts of having to have rolling blackouts. But when you, when you think about our power grid at its peak, can now use about 12,500 megawatts. That's how close we were. With another 40 megawatts of additional power, we would have had to go to rolling blackouts. And what that means is that you have to shed 100 megawatts at a time. 100 megawatts would have put 120,000 homes in the dark for a minimum of half an hour at a time as we cycled through and got over over that uh, period of time when it's minus 35, minus 40 plus with the wind chill, people are at home making dinner, doing kids homework. You can just imagine what it would mean to be then plunged into darkness with everywhere your eye can see, not knowing what's going on with 120,000 of your neighbors. We had to avoid that. That's the reason we needed to do an emergency alert. It was that close. And uh, this speaks to the federal liberals net zero plans, doesn't it? Oh, it, it, well, it does. You know, I, I listen with interest to hear um, Premier Scott Moe say that they don't have the constitutional authority. They also don't have the governance competence to engage in this area. 
I mean, our experts were watching this all day long. They were watching what was happening with solar. They were watching what happened with solar when the, when the sun went down and it falls off completely. They were watching what was happening with wind, which wasn't uh, producing much power anyway. But when you get dark and you have that kind of temperature and the strain on the mechanics, you have to shut it down. And so they knew that we were getting closer and closer from 4 o'clock on. They were watching more and more power uh, come on at, at in demand. And they knew by 6 o'clock we had to do an alert. I mean, under Stephen Guibault's plan, we would have had to call him to get permission to be doing something to bring new power on. That's how absurd it is for the environment minister federally to think that they can intervene when we have these kinds of situations develop. It's very fluid. You have to be able to respond quickly. And it's certainly not within their governance competence or their constitutional authority to intervene. That's why we have to make sure this stays provincial. So you're minus 35. You're on the verge of losing the grid, and you have to call the minister personally. That's, I guess that's how it would go down. And when you think about the time shift at night, who knows where he's going to be? Who knows if yeah. uh, on a Saturday night at 8 p.m. in Montreal, anybody would even be available. So th- this is why we, we expressed concern about this very early on, because we were already seeing stress on our grid. We, we, we had gone from having virtually no um, alerts of getting us this close to having eight. We've had eight. We had eight of these alerts from September of 2022 um, before I started uh, raising the alarm on this, and we we just had four more. So, so 12 alerts within the space of of 18 months. I mean, we we are seriously uh, under pressure on our grid, and more demand for power is going to continue coming on. We need to be able to have all power from all sources that makes sense, and in our geographic area. Natural gas is what makes sense. So what is the uh, federal environment minister telling you you have to do? Well, he's telling us that by 2035, we have to have a carbon neutral power grid. And I think that their conception of that when they first started out was thinking, oh, well, Alberta can just be solar and wind and batteries. Well, I think now people understand why that's not possible. Solar and wind work great during the day. Uh, but once you get to minus 35 and the sun's down, you can't just tell people, wait till the sun comes up tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. to solve this problem. you got to figure out how you're going to bridge from 5 p.m. at night when it's dark. You've got no solar, no wind at 9 a.m. in the morning when you're going to be able to have those resources come on. And, and I know uh, there's great hope in batteries, but the information I have is that batteries right now last about an hour. It costs a lot of money for to be able to get a a, a megawatt of backup at a million dollars. I understand per megawatt for backup, and they last an hour. So that's not an option either. So we have to use natural gas. But what the uh, environment minister wants us to do is have a ninety five percent of that abated on emissions by twenty thirty five. Best available technology right now is about sixty to sixty five percent. So essentially, he wants us to shut down our natural gas call him for permission if we get into these situations to be able to bring it on. It's absurd. And I'm not going to say that it's possible. It's not possible. And that's why we've just simply said we're not going to do it. That's part of the reason I had to invoke the Alberta Sovereignty within the United Canada Act to say whatever they end up finalizing, Alberta is going to have to chart its own path because we have to have reliability. We have to have affordability. And we're going to to go down a path that makes sense for us, which is a, a carbon neutrality by 2050. Premier, it doesn't seem like the federal liberals are going to change their minds. At the World Economic Forum, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, defined decarbonization as the singular issue defining the world economy. 
they're not backing off. It is their obsession as a as a government. I understand that uh, because you can. There's only there's no other way to, to understand why they're allowing Stephen Guibault to have the latitude now to go after what pizza ovens in Montreal. I mean, that's how absurd this environment minister and this administration is getting. There there are three aspects to what we have to deal with: reliability and affordability are just as important as reducing emissions. You cannot have the lights go down and the furnaces turn off in minus 35. You cannot have the air conditioning units go off in plus 35 either. We have to be able to manage the extremes. Otherwise, people die. I mean, people forget this. And uh, when they had the grid failure in Texas, I was watching this because I was on the air at the time. This is why I've been so sensitive to what happens when you have a lot of renewables on your grid because our market's very much like Texas. 346 people died. When, when their grid went down. This is, this is not games that we are playing. This is not virtue signaling that we're playing. This is people's lives. And that's why I'm not going to compromise on something that I know is not achievable and will put people in danger. I just can't do that. You know, I was about to mention the issue that lives could be at stake because there is life-sustaining medical equipment in people's homes. And mm-hmm. uh, they're on battery backup. But if you go into blackout mode... How long will those battery uh, backups work? And lives, as you say, would be directly at stake. It's interesting that that hasn't been addressed, or maybe it has, by Mr. Gibo, but I haven't heard anything about that. Well, I guess this is just it. I mean, when I when I started telling people and did our, our campaign about nobody wants to freeze in the dark in winter, um, people didn't believe me when I said that our, our grid was that unstable and that we were at that point. And so now people have to really think through about what that means. What would it have meant if somebody was down without power for 30 minutes in the kind of conditions I've described? We, we simply can't have that happen. So uh, that, that's, I, I hope we have a national discussion about this. It's, it's really a, um, a global discussion we have to have because it's not just us that is going through this. I mean, there, there were problems in Idaho at the same time. Um, there were problems down south that uh, British Columbia was sending their power down south. Uh, Saskatchewan was able to bail us out uh, with a, a small intertie that we have with them. But but we know that uh, the entire region was was under the same the, the same threat, and we have to be we have to be putting the, the lives and well being of our citizens first. I just received an email from uh, Cody in Alberta to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. He writes, Roy, I was in the middle of a 20-hour workday trying to keep my facility and oil wells going that night, and I was just praying that we wouldn't get hit with a blackout, as well as concern for my family at home. Minus 45 wind chill is no joke. This is beyond comfort, like Stephen Guibault wants everybody to believe it's time for adults to take over and get serious here. There's one Alberta position. No, I appreciate his, his feedback. I can tell you, my, my electricity minister, Nathan Mutifer, is really emotional because at 6 o'clock when we made the decision that we absolutely had to call on Albertans, they responded in spades. He said he looked out his window and it was almost, it was blackness because everybody stood up and turned their lights off. And to get the kind of response that we did with 100 megawatts immediately within the first minute and then 200 megawatts coming off the grid within five minutes, we had to have probably, he estimates, 500,000 Alberta households taking part to do their part, to shut off their lights, to turn down their space heater, to unplug their electric car, to unplug their block heater, to switch over to, 
to using a, a microwave instead of their, their electric stove. 500,000 households participating in that to make sure that our grid didn't go down. You can, you can imagine it was an all of Alberta approach. I'm so grateful for it, but yeah. it shouldn't be that way. We should be able to have enough reliable power so that uh, those kind of grid alerts are, are rare or don't happen at all. So that's part of the reason why when I got elected, it was sort of job one to figure this out. As we started seeing these ridiculous policies come through from the federal government, I fought them every step of the way. I'm going to continue to. And we're in the process of trying to engineer a grid that is going to be there for baseload power so that when the sun is down and the wind's not blowing and it's minus 35 at night, people can keep their lights on and make sure that the houses stay warm. Premier, do you expect that the other provinces, um, in addition to Saskatchewan, will be engaging as you have when they've seen what went on in your province? I know some provinces have less of an issue with an electrical grid than Alberta and Saskatchewan. What are you expecting? Well, I can, I can tell you I've already been watching with great interest as uh, Quebec has acknowledged that they have to stop allowing new industry to come on stream because they're grid constrained. Um, they, uh, th- by 2027, they've already used all of their uh, available hydro resources. When they, um, so they're going to have to look at how they're going to, to fill that gap. Uh, British Columbia as uh, as well. They uh, they already have Site C fully allocated. They've been suffering some issues because of drought. So I, I understand they haven't been able to have the same capacity that, that they had hoped to have. Um, so I believe that, that we are at a point where we did build that extra capacity in, but we're continuing to grow as a, an economy. We're continuing to welcome more people here from around the world, have more industry, and you have to bring more power on, on the grid. And, and these projects are not easy to bring on. Um, hydroelectric now, especially now that we know about the impact on First Nations, fish habitat, uh, biodiversity, they're not very easy to get through the regulatory process. You can't just uh, get those done within a couple of years. It takes decades to get those approved. For us, natural gas, we're able to get them approved, get them cited, and get them on stream relatively quickly. So that's why that's going to look at be, be our solution. I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing with uh uh, Ontario um, and the work that they're doing on developing small modular reactors. You probably saw one of our major power producers, Capital Powers, just started the, the process for how we might bring nuclear onto Alberta's power grid. They think they can get that done by 2035 on the first one, which is encouraging. And so I think that'll be a larger role. But we're in a period now where we're going to all be constrained in some way. We all have to grapple with how we're going to meet the, those power demands. Yeah. So the Liberals' directives... Mr. Gibo's directives, Mr. Trudeau's directives, can they be easily overturned by another government, for example, the Conservative Party of Mr. Polyev? And do you have assurances from Mr. Polyev's party that they would, in fact, do that? I can tell you the first step is they're going to be ignored. Um, they don't have the constitutional authority to do what they're doing. And so you will see that myself and Scott Moe and hopefully others will will challenge them. First of all, we've said we're just simply not implementing them. So we're going to do what we can to plan out our grid to ensure reliability, affordability, and, and continued movement towards emissions reduction. And I suppose the feds can take us to court if they think somehow we're violating the Constitution. I think we'd win this one. Uh, but then, uh, obviously, uh, any new administration would have to do a reversal. And I, I, I wish this administration would, would take their head out of the sand and do a reversal and realize that as aspirational as they want to be, they're moving too far too fast 
technology that's not available, timelines that are not achievable, and they're creating a lot of tension and division in the country. Why not just align around 2050, which is where we are, which is where Scott Moe is? Why do they have to try to press for something that will only result, I think, in worse outcomes for Canadian consumers? It makes no sense. And so we're, we're going to continue to try to be the voice of reason, but we, we haven't had much success with this environment minister. He's an ideologue. He's not seeing reason. I've, I've been pleading with his uh, his cabinet colleagues to rein him in and uh, to, to stop taking actions that are damaging to the Federation and damaging to our, our provincial economies and damaging to people. As we approach the uh, second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, FEP 2-2, is the situation on the ground in Ukraine worsening for the country's defending military the Globe and Mail is reporting forced conscription of military-age Ukrainian males is taking place, causing much anxiety in the country. As well, the country's president has said uh, Donald Trump's claim that he can stop the war within 24 hours is very dangerous. Glad to have back with us uh, Ambassador Oleksandr Sherba joining us from Ukraine, former Ukraine ambassador to Austria and member of the Ukraine diplomatic mission to the United States. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Ambassador, how are you? I'm good. Good to hear you, Roy. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm well, I'm, I've got laryngitis. It's not good for a radio talk show host. <laughs> it's not good. No, it's... It, it, but but it's getting better. Thank you for asking, Alexander. What's the situation now, today, in Ukraine and the war with Russia? Overview. Well, the situation where I am in uh, in the capital city is uh, tense in the way that uh, quite often there are these uh, nightly missile attacks. Uh, uh, right now, there have been reports that uh, these missile uh, carriers uh, are in Black Sea, uh, probably getting ready for something overnight. Uh, but we still have uh, uh, the Patriots. We still have the shells for Patriots. The bad news is that we are not receiving any more from the United States because the United States uh, took some time off on uh, supporting Ukraine. And once we run out of uh, air defense, uh, it can be uh, uh, much, much worse here. And, of course, the situation on the front line is uh, uh, growing more and more difficult. I, I'm in touch with a friend of mine who fights uh, in Donbass from the very first days. He left his life in Austria, and uh, he's there. And uh, he says now they have in a month what they just used to have in a day. He He's a is an artillery, uh, so he means uh, the shells. Uh, yet um, his unit is holding the position. It's one of the most, uh, you know, difficult ones near Vuhledar. Nevertheless, uh, they are holding the positions like uh, most of uh, our units in Donbass and in the south. But we do hope and we do pray that the United States will will return. Yeah, so so you're running out of munition, or you don't have yeah. as much as you had, which means the same thing, you're running out. And you're running out of Patriot uh, missile systems, which protect your cities from missile attack. And uh, yet Mr. Biden talks about being committed to supporting Ukraine. 
But there are voices in the United States who are saying no more or we shouldn't give much more. Um, Germany, I think, is stepping up in Europe. I, I may be wrong about that, but I read that they are. But they can't match the United States as far as providing armament is concerned. So if the slowdown continues, while Mr. Putin's forces are being armed and supported by the likes of Iran and North Korea, that's very worrisome, isn't it? It is. It is. It, it looks like the axis of evil right now is more reliable than the axis of good, uh, also known as uh, free world, the free world. Uh, and quite frankly, um, it's a strange kind of situation where the whole, you know, the industrial uh, potential and the uh, moral superiority of uh, the free world uh, seems uh, weaker than the resilience of uh, three economic dwarfs uh, who are nevertheless, you know, absolutely adamant uh, to do uh, their thing in Ukraine and in Ukraine first, because the next stage of this, uh, he, he, Putin is not planning just to dismantle Ukraine. He plans to dismantle the whole existing world order. Um, it is uh, it is uh, worrisome, quite frankly. Uh, nevertheless, if you look at the surveys in Ukraine, eighty uh, percent uh, are uh, adamantly people on the street. Actually, the the usual Ukrainians are adamantly opposed to any territorial, you know, um, concessions to Putin. Um, uh, the majority of population even supports uh, fighting to their own, even if uh, America decides to walk away. So, uh, if, uh, for instance, uh, somehow anybody would uh, want to force President Zelensky into, you know, surrendering or, you know, uh, giving Putin something, uh, it would be plain undemocratic of him because his people don't want that and his army doesn't want that. I speak to this friend of mine on the front line and ask him, what if, what if uh, we are forced into that kind of situation where we have to make a deal with the, with the devil? What would be the reaction of your of army comrades? What would be your reaction? He says, some people probably would go, but the majority will stay and we will fight. It will be probably some kind of a guerrilla fight, but we lost too many good men in this fight just to, you know, to give Putin what he wants. So Mr. Trump has said, and, and I'd like your thoughts on this, Mr. Zelensky is considering it uh, um, dangerous, very dangerous, quote-unquote. Mr. Trump has said within 24 hours if he becomes president, it's over because he's a good friend of Putin's and he's a friend of President Zelensky's and all it will take him is 24 hours and the war is over. You know the diplomatic world far better than most. When you hear Mr. Trump say that, what's your, what's your reaction, Alexander? Well, I have to be careful uh, and uh, give uh, the potential uh, president of the United States the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but quite frankly, we are scratching our heads what that might be uh, that would uh, somehow uh, 
um, resolve this kind of uh, situation and this kind of uh, war. And uh, uh, President Zelensky um, said the right thing in Davos. He said, well, maybe it would make sense for Mr. Trump to visit Ukraine and to learn to think to learn a thing or two about this country uh, and maybe share something of uh, his plan because uh, um, we are at a loss quite frankly you've lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers members of the military the Russians have uh, lost far more not, not they're not killed you mean all, all, all killed all killed and wounded wounded and killed yeah yeah, yeah. So hundreds of thousands. The Russians, much more. They've lost. They, they, they're dead. A number in the hundreds of thousands, and it doesn't bother Putin a bit. Um, what's the story here about military forced conscription in Ukraine now of military age males? What's going on? Well, I see. I see these videos that Russians are. So enthusiastically spreading uh, and uh, on Twitter, on internet. Quite frankly, I live in Kiev uh, uh, from the very beginning uh, of uh, the invasion. I have haven't seen a situation like that. I see uh, men of uh, young age, conscript age, walking freely, sitting in restaurants. Uh, um, not uh, fearing of any kind of, you know, that someone will come and grab them. That is, quite frankly, also a weird situation because some people are fighting on the front line and others uh, are not. And um, this is, I, I can understand the feeling of some uh, Ukrainian soldiers who are coming uh, for, you know, for a couple of weeks uh, Rest and uh, they see these kind of pictures on the streets, and uh, they are of course bitter about it too. But uh, I don't know where they. Uh, obviously, it's happening somewhere. They say in Western Ukraine there are some over-eager, you know, uh, conscript officers uh, which are doing that. Um, it's doing, in my opinion, it's doing only harm, and uh, there are many, many. Uh, people uh, of conscript age uh, uh, who uh, will go, they haven't volunteered, but they would go if they receive, if, if they get summoned. So like myself, if I get summoned, I will go, uh, despite my 53 year, years of age and uh, despite the fact that I'm a cancer survivor, uh, I will go. And so would many, many people like me. So I don't know what, what this forest conscript actually is for. Yeah, I mean, I read the story and I wanted to ask you about it. It's concerning news coming out of uh, Ukraine and out of Kiev. Alexander, just cutting to the chase here, without American support the way you had it, can you win the war against Russia with Russia being supplied by Iran and North Korea? Well, I think uh, uh, Ukraine will survive uh, because Ukraine uh, is tough and Ukraine has uh, the support of decent people and nations of the world uh, like uh, the UK, like Canada, like uh, the countries of EU, like Japan. So what uh, Russians uh, call the collective West, I, I don't think it's a negative term. Uh, uh, but without America, um, 
ultimately winning without American support, without American weapons, without without American participation uh, with weapons, uh, it would be difficult. Yeah. And uh, by, by by winning, I mean uh, liberating uh, all, all our territories and saving our people from this uh, terror of Putin uh, on the occupied territories. This is this is what we mean by not 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 burning down the Kremlin. No, no, um, I understand that. Although you told us once that a senior Ukraine military commander said, "Once we're at the border, this is when your forces were really pushing them back." said, once we're at the Russian border, maybe we won't stop. And I understand that's frontline talk, but that spoke of the, of the enthusiasm and the, uh, and the, the sense of, um, of, of the, 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 the uh, positive nature. Um, I, I just I ran out of time here for our conversation today. I won't take as long to talk to you again. M- millions of people in this country and Canada support Ukraine. Feel very strongly. Want our government to continue to provide support, and uh, it's it's often a thought, uh, sort of a throwaway line, Alexander. But not in this case. Our thoughts are with you, regularly, daily, and you've got millions of people in this country on your side. Thank you, Roy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. What a turnout. What a crowd. And I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. It would be so nice. Former President Donald Trump, of course, uh, after he won the Iowa caucuses, and immediately declaring himself the uh, candidate for the Republican Party in uh, this year's U.S. election. He probably will be the candidate for the Republican Party, which will be very interesting because he still has criminal court cases ahead. This is a changing world and a quickly changing world. If Mr. Trump is reelected in the United States, what does that mean for the, for the Americans? What does that mean for Canada's relationship with the United States. Interestingly, I read a story the other day that a greater percentage of young Canadians than even young Americans support Donald Trump. And then you look to Europe, where populist Giorgia Maloney of Italy was elected prime minister. In Argentina, just recently, populist Javier Mili was elected president. 
This is after very few considered him electable just a few months earlier. And Mr. Mealy at uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, said just a day or two ago that government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Government is not the solution. Government is the problem. And he accused the West and Western governments of drifting too far towards socialism and collectivism and said socialism and collectivism are a disaster. That I'm using my own word there, a disaster. In the Netherlands, Geert Wilders, who's considered extremist, anti-immigrant, and anti-Muslim, also was considered unelectable, saw him and his party win the most seats in the national election last November. And in Sweden, an anti-immigration and nationalist bloc of parties won a majority in the country's parliament. This is really interesting, the, the developments. And younger people are driving the... In the, the initiative toward the populist parties winning in national elections. Daryl Bricker joins us, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, of course. Ipsos polls on such issues internationally, does tremendous polling for Global News, and Daryl is the author of the book I recommend to everybody next about what's going to be happening in this country. Daryl, when we look at um, just the uh, the individual elections that I that I mentioned, you put them together, you start to see a trend, it's, it's hard not to. Is it a trend? I mean, I see it as one. Or are these just individual occurrences? Is the world, and our particularly younger voters, looking for a populist government? Yeah, what we're seeing, Roy, is it's actually not an isolated event. It's, it's not a, um, it, but it's also not the same exactly everywhere. I mean, so there are some places where the populists aren't necessarily on the rise, but we seem to be in this cycle of which populist governments are becoming more of the uh, of the uh, the agent of change that people are looking for. It kind of reminds me of the late '70s, early 1980s, when you saw, you know, Ronald Reagan win in the United States, and you saw Margaret Thatcher win in in, in the UK. It was after this long period of just this sense of demise. You know, Jimmy Carter called it, you know, this uh, this malaise that kind of existed in the country. And that's what we're seeing in these places where people feel that things aren't getting better. They're just prepared to throw the biggest bomb that they can, the most emphatic bomb that they can at their uh, at their political systems to see if something will shake it up. And uh, when you look at somebody like Mealy from Argentina, who was really not on the map to be elected just months before he was for the majority, uh, Argentina is an interesting case because they were an economic power until they started to really socialize their 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 economy, and then every the whole thing started to implode. Their um, interest rate and their um, inflation rate is just insane, and so younger Argentinians made the call. And I just wonder if around the world younger people are looking at what the status quo and hearing the same old phraseology. Or terms like decarbonization, which Christian Freeland used at the World Economic Forum. I talked about it last half hour with our friend Dr. Eric Cam. And here's terms like decarbonization, and they're saying, oh, God, no, my parents fell for that. I'm not going to. Well, uh, what we're seeing right now is really the dissolution of the governing consensus, you know, the, the soft right and the soft left. You know, the thing that really kept uh, things going in many countries for many years, that's what's really under challenge. So 
just as you're seeing the rise of, of um, uh, the right as the populist option in many countries, there's also a more emphatic set of solutions coming out from the left as well. Uh, they came out a little bit earlier. They tend to be in the, the green parties, the degrowth movement, as they call themselves, that have a very different vision of what the uh, of what the future should be. So what we're seeing is these more emphatic types of sides in, in politics and this governing consensus of your parents that's the thing that seems to be evaporating. So if Donald Trump becomes the nominee for the Republican Party, and I suspect he will, you have, you have more information on that than I do, but my gut tells me he's going to win the nomination regardless of what's going on on the periphery of his life. That will make a huge impact on American society. And, and what kind of um, repercussions would it have internationally? Would it be significant or not? Yeah, definitely would be significant. I mean, one of the first the big changes that we saw in the United States after Donald Trump was elected was we do a survey every year for the Halifax International Security Forum on what people think about the contributions of a variety of countries and institutions to uh, um, to, to world affairs. And the United States lost about 13, 14 points almost the day after Donald Trump was elected, and it didn't come back in terms of international public opinion until Joe Biden became the president. So, you know, the the first thing that's going to be affected is what the rest of the world thinks of the United States because they've elected Donald Trump. Okay. If Trump is elected, if he becomes the, the nominee for the Republican Party, what does that suggest for Justin Trudeau and the liberals? What does it suggest for Mr. Singh? What does it suggest for Pierre Polyev? Anything? Well, I, I think that, you know, the liberals um, and Mr. Singh... Uh, will probably try to present themselves as, you know, the logical alternative, uh, you know, the force that can push back against Mr. Trump uh, and, and protect Canada's interests. But, you know, Canada's not really in that strong a, posi uh, strong a position. And it's not like Justin Trudeau and the Liberals or even the current government that uh, involves the NDP has had such tremendous influence on events in the United States, particularly when it comes to even how Canada's uh, regarded in relative to policy, how it's regarded in terms of international forums, or even how it's regarded in terms of the bilateral relationship that the two countries have. So uh, we know that uh, Mr. Trump is not a fan of Justin Trudeau. Um, you know, potentially somebody else could make the argument uh, that actually he might find a way, and that would be Mr. Polyev, to protect Canada's interests and try and find a way to get along with the Americans. Now, a lot of people might not want to hear that, but the uh, but Canada is in such a dependency relationship with the United States right now, we can't afford to uh, to be in a position in which the uh, in which the United States really uh, um, uh, either doesn't take our interests into account or actively works against our interests. You know the thing that really concerns me on this one, Roy, is the is the immigration well, and what could happen after Mr. Trump becomes uh, uh, the president of the United States if he does win. He's made a very emphatic statement about what he's going to be doing for people he considers to be uh, illegal immigrants in the United States, and he's going to he's going to crack down hard. Um, what's going to happen across the longest undefended border uh, uh, in, in the world between Canada and the United States? Do you think we're going to, we already have a bit of an immigration, huge immigration issue right now. What's going to happen if that happens? Yeah, I, ju I just wonder, Daryl, whether the visceral response of a population, of numbers of populations in the world is, we've had enough. We don't want to go on with the same route. We don't want the same old stories and the same old news releases. We want something different. So last weekend, I spoke with a German 
uh, about the, the German farmers' protest, which has shut down much of the yeah. country. And I had a German guest. And then I followed that because I was wondering what might happen in this country. I followed with the president of the Western Wheat Growers Association about a possible similar public protest by Canada's farmers. And the president of the Wheat Growers wasn't willing to say Canada's farmers would follow the lead of the German counterparts. But he wasn't willing to dismiss the possibility either. And in Canada, it's the carbon tax and the fertilizer policies of Trudeau's government that has the farmers utterly frustrated. I just... I look at Mealy, I look at Maloney, I look at what's, uh, what, what, what happened in Sweden, I look at Wilders and what happened in the Netherlands, and I just see national populations who are saying, enough, I don't care if this person or this party was deemed unelectable, I want something different, and I'm going for it. Yeah, well, in Canada, that's very much what we're seeing in our polling, and I think not just our polling, all of the polling out there, where the, the Liberals... You know, just sunk into oblivion back in uh, back in the summertime because of a confluence of events, and they found no way to get themselves back on track. And what's particularly troubling, if you're a liberal, is that what's happened is there the events of the day combined with the policies that the government's putting in place seems to have no effect on how people regard. Uh, the uh, the performance of the government or, or the or, or the prime minister or their popularity, and that's because they've just decided they want to have a change. So there, there's almost nothing they can do. We're just gonna we're just gonna play this thing out over the next while. And and the hardest part for for uh, uh, Justin Trudeau and all of this is they can go out and they can slam Pierre Polyev all they want, but it's not like Canadians particularly like Polyev anyway. What they like right now is change, and he's the one uh, person on the national stage who's really talking about it in a significant way, which is why he is where he is. He's the antidote to whatever uh, exists in the current situation. And if you don't like it, you really only have one choice. And that's basically what Canadians are telling us in the polling. You can communicate with us uh, during uh, the program on our text line at 1-877-399-9898, which Henry in Mississauga is doing. Based on my conversation with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Roy, I've heard a lot of old school liberals say that the current liberal party isn't the liberal party, but is the Trudeau party. I'm not a liberal by any means, but I totally agree with that statement. And, and Daryl, that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, you, you've told us that. It, this, isn't the, this isn't the liberal party any longer. They don't have, it's not Jean Chrétien with Paul Martin in the wings. It's Justin Trudeau with Justin Trudeau in the wings. It's basically what it is, and it was done intentionally. I mean, they, uh, when Trudeau took over as the as the leader of the Liberal Party, he took over a very, very weak party, and then proceeded to blow up all the institutions. And, you know, everything from getting rid of the Senate caucus through to changing all of their fundraising team, doing all, getting rid of all the the infrastructure that existed previously to create essentially a party of Justin Trudeau, which was why they also brought in a new system for electing leaders in which you didn't have to buy party memberships. Everybody could come in and, and support the party because they thought Justin Trudeau was the ticket and everybody was going to support him. And it would be a, a huge way to, to build this Trudeau movement. Uh, but one of the, one truism in politics, Roy, is that what makes you weak or strong makes you weak. So it made them strong back in 2015, makes them pretty weak today. Yeah. Nobody wants his healthy with them anymore. Nobody, nobody wants a selfie with him. I, I saw or heard somebody, apparently he, he, he offered to do a selfie with somebody and the person said, no thanks. In 2015, well, they would have lined up, they were lining up in 2015. Yeah, but um, the truth is, it's very difficult to see how he goes anywhere from where he is. Mm -hmm. Can I just play a little bit uh, of uh, President Mealy? of Argentina, who was considered unelectable. He's a former media guy. 
And here's a little bit of what he said to the World Economic Forum. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. There you go, Daryl. That was, his, that was his opening 30 seconds or 45 seconds to the World oh, Economic yeah. Forum, right? He, he started a dumpster fire there. There's he no did. Stuff. And he went on and on and on. And yeah. It was... Uh, it was uh, uh, probably difficult for all of those uh, people at Davos to hear, not because they dis uh, they uh, um, felt like they were particularly guilty, but they probably were thinking, how did this crazy person end up being the president of Argentina and end up on this stage? Yeah. But the truth is, he's better aligned with public thinking these days than the Davos crowd. So, you know, he ended his uh, speech with long live liberty. Um and, and my sense is there are more melees lining up behind him. And people are prepared. We'll go back to the beginning of what we talked about. But the people are ready to elect the unelectable because that's, I mean, that's what's happening. Builders, Maloney, um, uh, in Sweden, the, uh, the uh, block of conservative parties. It, it just seems to be what's happening in, 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 a, in a fair bit of the world. So... Yeah, we're in for a very interesting, uh, interesting uh, year, two, three, four, five, aren't we? Uh, yeah, we really are. And, and you know, uh, pr traditionally, what has been happening on the far right, or the more right wing side of the political agenda. And by the way, all the populists are from the right wing. Um, Obrador in Mexico's comes from the left. I mean, so and there's it's it's not unique specifically to the right, although the right's on a bit of a roll right now. Um, but the 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 big change that's taken place over the last while is usually. It was very much a response to cultural change as a result of immigration. So, you know, large amounts of immigration led to a bit of a, a pushback, and you saw the right would rise up, and Gilker Wilders being a real example of that. What's really changed, though, mm -hmm. over the space of the last year is that it's other issues that are coming in here, particularly things like green issues, okay. where people are, people are saying, hey, you know, maybe we need a different approach. Our trade routes are being rewired through uh, de-risking of, of supply chains. That is a form of a supply shock. It will have some persistence. Obviously, energy systems are being rewired uh, with uh, addressing uh, climate change. Mark Carney, the uh, former governor of the Bank of Canada and governor of the Bank of England, some say he's going to be the next Liberal Party leader federally and could supplant Mr. Trudeau before the next federal election. I've heard all sorts of stories, including Mr. Trudeau pursuing the uh, Secretary General's job at the United Nations. All sorts of rumors floating around. But let's deal with our economy and the realities. Inflation numbers for December, not the greatest news. For the Bank of Canada, StatScan says the annual rate of inflation accelerated to 3.4% in December, thanks to gas prices and still sticky price hikes at the grocery store, this is from Global News, 
And that's up from November inflation rate of 3.1%. Bank of Montreal chief economist Don, uh, Doug Porter rather, says this is unsettling news for the Bank of Canada. So here we are. I don't know whether we should be or not. But talking about the interest rate, our good friend, Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University is with us. Uh, Dr. Cam, is there even a remote chance of interest rates going back up in the near future? Hi, Roy. You sound better. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, there is a remote chance, but it's it's very remote. Um, in fact, I, I, I think it's terribly remote, but... Um, I think it's equally remote to the probability of them going down as well. Um, And I think that really is the focus of our discussion today. You know, I was going to reference our our good friend, Greg Brady, who hosts Toronto Today, likes to talk about a game about a bunch of of truths and then a lie. And I thought that we could kind of play that game today, Um, only we'd call ours a bunch of lies uh, and the truth. Because I think you just played Mark Carney, who I think was as truthful as as anyone can be. And frankly, more than our government, when he references things like the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea and these idiotic energy policies we have to address climate change. And I think he is at least honest and open enough to admit that we're going to have a return of everybody's favorite game show, the supply chain Defuffle. And that makes me sad, Roy. So um, if I could, I just want to quickly address what you said to open and then we can dig a little deeper. Sure. You said StatsCan says that the annual inflation rate ticked up to 3.4 thanks to gas prices and still sticky price hikes. Um, an unqualified no to that one, Roy. That's that's a lot of garbage. The answer is that we are stuck still in inflation because of high prices at the grocery store, natural gas, personal and corporate taxes, and rent and mortgage interest. And the way to know that is just to pull up the data on gas prices, and they have fallen now for five consecutive months. Anybody that's gone to the gas station knows that they, they're not cheap, but they're not where they were a year ago. So truly, it is shelter inflation that is driving this. It is rent, it is interest on mortgages that are driving the high costs right now. And finally, before I take a breath, higher costs for fuel oil and and passenger vehicles contributed a lot now to inflation last month. And to that, we can directly thank our prime minister for completely mishandling not only the supply chain over the last couple of years, but what I think is almost criminally abusing our natural resource sector, Roy. So you addressed my second question with your first answer, which is fine. I'll just read again what Global News wrote. Statistics Canada says the annual rate of inflation accelerated to 3.4% in December thanks to gas prices and still sticky price hikes at the grocery store. Prices at the grocery store rose 4.7% last month, StatsCan says, same pace seen in November. And then they go on to say shelter, as you just said, shelter in- inflation, such as climbing rent and mortgage costs, continue to drive the cost of living higher in December. Do you see any relief inside? Because I don't. No, I don't. And I think what bothers me the most, Roy, and I say this today, by the way, I should have emailed you first, but we, we welcome today on the Roy Green Show 
my 1,100 students this semester. And part of, you know, my lesson to my students is to try to be able to um, strain away baloney, not the one at the grocery store. And so I can play lots of games, Roy, with statistics. You know, they said 4.7 annually. Um, come on, Roy. I'd love to see anybody. I'd love to see which goods at the grocery store have only increased by 4.7%. Over the last year, you know they said they said they said four point seven percent last month. Yeah, but Roy, it's a lot more than four point seven percent for anybody that buys luxuries like fruits and vegetables and meat. <laughs> yep. It depends on what you throw into that basket. I can throw anything in there to make the numbers look better and the numbers look worse. And so the bottom line is, the Bank of Canada they have their big fancy surveys that that are suggesting inflation should be less intense in twenty twenty four. And my answer is, why? Why? Because I'm going to give you two choices, and they both stink. Either they're saying we're in a recession and it's only going to be deepened, or they're throwing up their hands at the sky and praying. And I don't know about you, but neither of those answers as an economist makes me feel terribly confident. And that's what they're doing. So let me just get to this story as well. I spoke uh, with Premier Daniel Smith of Alberta about this, mentioned it actually, the Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, at the World Economic Forum, she wasn't really supposed to be there, I understood, but was there as a last-minute invite. She talked about decarbonization as the singular issue defining the world economy. And her quote is, I think we're living in a moment that is comparable only to the industrial revolution itself in terms of energy transition and the way we need to retool all of our manufacturing. That's clever, but it, it's not sneaking that one by either you or me. You know, as I listened to your last guest, I have to be completely honest, I've never met her nor spoken to her, but all that went through my mind is I think she's in the wrong job. I think she should be the prime minister. And I say that with absolutely no joke intended. Decarbonization. What kind of like what kind of an expression is this in an economy where far too many people can't afford rent and food? This is an obsession and it's a sick obsession. And I don't understand why the government, I'll never understand, Roy, why they're choosing right now to go after a policy that hurts all Canadians. Every single Canadian is made worse by this. If for no other reason than if that's what you are going to pursue, then you are not pursuing something else. And let me again give you some more rhetoric by the central bank. You know, this week they, they're going to come up with a number, but we know that they're going to hold the rate at 5.0%. But then they waffle and they say, well, it could start to go up and it could start to go down. Well, thanks for the warning. Right. What's really going on here is telling Canadians and the Canadian public that we should be thankful when that rate is stuck at five percent because it could have gone up. So didn't we do a great job by not having to raise it? No, you've not done a great job by not raising it. You are doing two things. You are whitewashing the past 36 months and you are not admitting that your true manifestation as a government is this net zero policy which only looks good at silly conferences made up of wealthy academics. It hurts all Canadians why they are not equally obsessed with raising disposable incomes of Canadians is beyond me, Roy. So we're going to talk about this in the next hour. 
when we talk about the changes that are taking place globally, as many of the uh, electorates in, in different countries in the world are moving significantly to the right. But the new premier or prime minister of Argentina, Millet, or Mili, said at the uh, World Economic Forum, and bless him, he said, governments are not the solution. They're the problem. They're not the solution. They're the problem. But I can guarantee you, Professor Cam, that in the upcoming federal election, whether that's this year or next year, the word decarbonization, that construct that makes no sense, it's only a political construct, that word is going to be at the top of so many news releases from the Liberal Party, and it's going to be repeated and repeated and repeated with different taglines, and I don't know how many Canadians are going to buy it, but I think it'll have an impact. But that is a word constructed for the use in the next federal election. And we know that one of the ways that governments win is by having taglines like that. They repeat over and over and over again. Rob Ford had the gravy train. And they are generally successful. But that's what I try to do, Roy, when I come on your show, when you and I talk, whether it's privately or publicly, is what I try to do is say, please, Canadian public, I know you're suffering. All you have to do is walk into a grocery store or a bank to renegotiate your mortgage. I know that most Canadian families are suffering right now. So please, when you walk into a voter's booth, when you start to read the rhetoric that's going to come out about the election, don't be fooled. Use data. Use facts. And right now, I'm going to take decarbonization and put it where it belongs, which is in the trash can, and tell Canadian people from coast to coast that if you're looking for macroeconomic data to signal either a rate cut or an increase in gross domestic product, there is not any and nothing the Bank of Canada said this week is going to help you feel any better. They are in no rush to cut rates. And by the way, Roy, I know you have to break at some point, but one of the big banks came out. I I won't say which one, but one of the big banks came out and said, quote, the question remaining is how long will it take for easing to happen? Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. I would say the same thing if I had shareholders who were nervous. There is no data right now pointing to any economic recovery. We are stagnant. And the only thing that we are full speed ahead toward is that word, decarbonization, which we know is harmful. And I'll give you another example of what decarbonization is going to be aimed toward, and that is justifying the net zero initiatives or demands or policies of the federal environment minister for 2035. He's talked about decarbonization. Now the federal finance minister is linking it uh, to what Gibo has said. So they're going to try to justify their net zero initiatives, let's call them that, by using the word decarbonization. You might as well include it in your Scrabble game dictionary because it's there now. But be aware, when you see it on Liberal Party news releases during the federal election, just know what it is. It's a construct that means only one thing, elect us so we can keep on doing what we're doing. That's what it means. That's, that's what, Roy, and very quickly, that not only is, is that exactly what it means, but it also means don't look at the facts. Yeah, exactly. Like, we'll like do that. the 2035 move to electric vehicles where most of the batteries are dying in cold weather. <laughs> 
It's quite a world we live in. The world is being rewired, says Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada governor, Bank of England governor. Let's get back to what Mark Carney said. The world is being rewired, and we'll see more supply shocks. How severe do you expect it might become, or is there any way to know or predict? There, there's no way to predict, Roy, um, but, but Mark Carney is a bright man, very bright man, and he's right. And so what he's saying, which I actually find quite amazing because he advertises him himself as a liberal, is he's saying that these obsessive tendencies toward these green initiatives and net zeros are only going to cause further pain at the, um, at, at, at the cash register, and he's kind of in his own way, I think, warning Canadians that not only like socio-political unrest is, of course, the biggest reason for supply chain issues, but then there are ones that are politician made. And I think he's saying, be careful, because we are right in the middle of both of them. And there's there's really no way to know. Um, I like Carney. I do. As an economist, I, I think he makes a lot of sense. But if you're going to ask me, is he going to single-handedly save the liberals? Uh, no, because as much as I hate the word carbonization, I also don't like terms like drain the swamp. But in this case, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's representative of where the Liberal Party is. I, I think it's too little. I think it's too late. And I think the Canadians aren't stupid and they want change. And they know that a party is more than, than the leader. And I think that their disappointment with the Liberals goes far deeper than the person at the front of the room. Too many poor policies, too many poor ministers, and no leader can do an about face. And again, Mark Carney's come out and said firmly, I'm a liberal. So he can't really then stand up in front of a caucus and say, I'm going to reroute all of your policies. I mean, you're a liberal or you're not a liberal, Roy. So it's going to be very interesting. And parachuting in Mark Carney as the leader of the Liberal Party, which to many Canadians seem like a replay of Mr. Ignatieff, and I don't think Canadians, many of Canadian voters are not in the mood for that. Not at all. So if there were a political change, and we have about two minutes here, if there were a political change, and I've always considered, long considered Justin Trudeau to be a drain on our economic uh, adventure, on our economic prosperity, on investment, if Mr. Trudeau were to step aside, would that have a significant impact on international investment, or would international investors wait and see and evaluate Canada over the next couple of years? They would absolutely wait and see for the exact same long-winded reason that I just gave, because a party is more than its leader. And I think that the international community sees Canada as a very small player who makes a lot of mistakes, both domestically and internationally. And I think that the community, whether it's the banking system, the credit system, a lot of the market systems right now, are going to very much hold the line and see, let's let's see what's coming next. Let's see if it's just going to be second verse, same as the first. I mean, you can put a brand new person in a brand new um, outfit in front of the room, but it doesn't mean that any of the policies are going to change. And much like Canadian people themselves, the world isn't stupid and are going to wait to see what happens. And I think that, for the well, I think it's over, first of all. I don't think liberals can win. But... I think what they can do is salvage some some positive reputation by at least coming forward and admitting that they've made mistakes, which they won't do, changing some very poor policies for their constituents, 
which they won't do. And as a uh, parenthetic commercial, shame on them this week for some of their homophobic ads against Mr. Polyev, who, if they did any research at all, would know that he comes from a family of gay people. And so I think the Liberal Party, Trudeau, I put them all in one bag, Roy. I think time is ticking. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.